Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie swap podcast with two friends who are trying to. I never remember the tagline to our podcast. How does this intro go? Welcome to Blind Spotters, a movie podcast about the movies we've missed. I'm Amanda Liberto. And I'm Zach Pocklip. Welcome into the show. Today we are doing a movie swap on our favorite writers. Zach, how you doing? What'd you choose? What are we swapping? Um, I chose for you to watch Francis Ha, written and directed by Noah Baumbach. And what did you tell me to watch? I'm doing well, also. And oh, yeah. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, I'm doing good. Yesterday it rained. Thank God. Oh, wow. Um, by the time this comes out, it will most likely be the last time it rained. <laughs> but uh, it was very nice, which always puts me in a good mood. But the movie I had you watch is The Royal Tenenbaums, written by one Wes Anderson. Other than that, big moves for us. We've both been to the movie theaters again recently, which is magical. I saw like my two favorite types of movies so far at the theaters. Uh, I saw a horror movie. And then I saw a musical. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so what did you watch? I watched uh, A Quiet Place Part 2. And then I saw In the Heights. And both were great. How about you? What have you seen so far? So my first movie back uh, was Cruella. Um, How was it? (laughs) It was a movie that occurred. And then I also saw Do the Right Thing. They showed it at the AMC close to my house. So welcome back to us. Welcome back to us. Is this the part where we talk about why these movies are paired? Or I forget if we actually talk about that ever. We paired these movies. This is two of our favorite movies. Um, I think in some episodes, we will have movies Mm -hmm. that we like, but aren't necessarily a ride or die movie for either of us. But I really feel like these two movies are. And Mm -hmm. um, this one was written by my favorite writer and director, um, Wes Anderson. And then yours, you had a movie by your favorite writer, Noam Baumbach. So it felt like a really good connection um, for the two of them. And they also seem similarly paced uh, so I thought it was actually like a really good swap. Unlike last time, <laughs> I felt like both of those movies are really good and I'm glad <laughs> we watched them, but they, I would not say that they are good back to back or anything like that. With that, do you want to call it? Uh, yeah, I'm going to call Tails. Uh, if you could flip the coin. It's Heads. Damn it. Am <laughs> I, I ever like won? You... I never know. I, uh, I think you won last time. Oh, that's nice. Okay. (laughs) I could be wrong. I could be, you know, who knows? Anyway. Listeners, uh, please let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Shay, please let us know. (laughs) The friends who work with uh, Zach, please let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I want to talk about Royal Titan Moms first. Is that okay? Of course it is. (laughs) All right. So tell me what happened in this movie, which is actually kind of funny because like these movies have plots these being Wes Anderson movies, they have plots, but it's mostly about the feel and the style. But please tell me the plot of the Royal Tenenbaums. To quote you, so much movie. This movie is about the Tenenbaum family. The father is named Royal, who is played by Gene Hackman. Etheline is played by Angelica Houston. And it's uh, their three kids, Chaz, Richie, and Margot. They're played by Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, and Gwyneth Paltrow, respectively. Uh, Royal and Ethelyn get divorced when the kids are young and the kids kind of proceed to become young geniuses in their own ways. Uh, 22 years later, 
The family is kind of like spread out down on their luck and Royal, who has been living in a hotel until he is kicked out, finds out that Ethelene has gotten engaged to Henry Sherman, who is played by Danny Glover. And so Royal decides to get closer to his family again. He decides to fake having stomach cancer like as a ruse to be like, oh, my last dying days, I want to spend them with my family. From there, hijinks ensue as Royal tries to kind of make amends with everyone and bond with everyone. Uh, eventually, though, Henry exposes Royal's plan and Royal has to move out of their house. So meanwhile, amidst that, we find out that uh, Richie has been in love with Margot, who is his adopted sister, key point. Uh, and he and Margot's husband, Raleigh St. Clair, who is played by Bill Murray, hire a private investigator and find out about Margot's like very concealed kind of crazy past, as well as her affair with... Uh, the Tenenbaum's childhood friend, Eli Cash, who was played by Owen Wilson. Um, this more or less leads uh, to Richie attempting suicide, but he is saved by Raleigh's patient, Dudley, um, who finds him in the bathroom. Uh, from there, Richie is in the hospital, but then he escapes, goes to a tent back home where Margot finds him. Uh, they finally tell each other they love each other, basically, and they kiss. Later, Royal decides that he wants Ethelene to be happy, so he finally divorces her officially. And at Ethelene and Henry's wedding, Eli, who is a drug addict, is high and crashes the car into the house where the wedding is. And kind of basically the resolutions start to pour out from there. Uh, the end of the movie kind of shows everyone kind of getting back on their feet, um, except for Royal, who eventually dies and has a heart attack. But like his family is, is kind of back together and kind of thinks of him in a more positive way. Um, and the movie kind of ends with uh, the team's, his tombstone being like died tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed sinking battleship. I know I missed a lot, but there's so much that happens with like for like two seconds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I think you, the only parts that stood to me that you missed or like maybe brushed over were are like character things. Cause it, it it's all just character development movie. Yeah. Like the plot is just like introducing these characters and then like, they have like maybe three interactions really. And then the movie ends. Yeah. Like literally Gwyneth Paltrow is like available for like 10 days to film this movie. But um, before I get into like the things that I thought about the movie, uh, why did you want me to watch this one? This movie is, uh, it is a movie, but it's a, it's a piece of art. Like it's one of the most original pieces of art in film, both like, the way it's written, but the way it's stylized, the way it's directed. This was the first movie of Wes's where he has the Wes Anderson style. Um, and I think it really just like took people aback. Um, and he's obviously stuck with it ever since it's become a cliche at this point. Um, but I, I think that nothing had existed before this movie that was like this. And it, I think it's just like remarkable. Um, I also like that it's sad, but it's bright. It's like all the music I listen to is <laughs> <laughs> like fun, but sad. And uh, I just, I, I, this movie is like a, like a feeling more than really anything. And I think I probably said that about little miss sunshine. Um, yeah. It, it, it is the types of movies I enjoy, but I, I just, I love this movie. It just is like truly like a painting, but it has a, a miniature plot to it. Mm -hmm. What were some of your like first impressions? Okay. So to your point uh, about it being a piece of art, I feel like Wes Anderson 
movies, he never lets you forget that you're watching a movie. So instead of like a movie by like Richard Linklater or the Duplass brothers, where it's very grounded and and kind of realistic and and all that stuff, Wes Anderson movies are like, no, everything's going to be in a very proper place, right? Like he's like a filmmaker of dioramas or like of snow globes and you can't reach into his snow globe. I think there's something like 300 sets on this movie. Um, and some of them are for half a second, like Gwyneth Paltrow's marriage to a Jamaican recording artist. And when I was reading about it, Wes was saying he wanted to create like an exaggerated version of New York City because, you know, he grew up in Texas, but um, this was like kind of the New York City he kind of wanted to make. It's very almost distant, but like obviously that's where he kind of is able to imbue his characters and pull performances out of the actors in the movie to kind of... I don't know, fill it with that life. But it's almost one of those movies you could either like really watch or it felt like it's a movie you could really watch with like great detail and look like, oh, look at the suitcases lined up by size and look at how the colors are clashing together. Or you could just watch the movie and kind of have it as like wallpaper in a nice way where it's like, this is a beautiful thing with these movie stars and it's kind of quirky and yeah i don't know if that makes sense <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right I, like i liked your point about this like almost fake version of new york city because west did grow up in uh texas and he's from texas and that's like where he met the wilson brothers and it is almost like a vision of new york by someone who's never been there it's very romantic and i think that it's funny because Francis Ha, I think, has a very romantic version of New York, but it's realistic. And like that movie is like hyper realistic. It, and we'll get into that later. But I do think that these movies are very like they're they're existing on similar but opposite planes almost. Yeah, it's it's very um, I, when I think of kind of any Wes Anderson movie that I've seen, I've only seen maybe half of his movies. It's like everything is unobtainable to like the regular person. So the most uh, stark example I have of it is the cigarettes that uh, Margot smokes are, I think they're called Sweet Aftons and they're Irish cigarettes that were discontinued in 1970. Like you literally cannot obtain these. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of that distance or that, I don't know, remove or it just always reminds you like this is a movie we're not making any qualms about it you are watching a film and just deal with it i i love that it, it's again it's like a piece of art that's like in a painting in a frame on a wall in a museum you can't touch yeah and i think uh, the easy criticism of wes anderson movies is probably like he's style over substance and that's like a lazy critique probably because i also think to bring the diorama part to the performances he kind of lays out these roles for actors and then he kind of just lets them like find the character within that like it seems like he gives them a little bit of room to discover along with them what these characters and what these relationships are mm -hmm. it's like while the set and the production design and the shots are all very meticulous it, it's almost like the work comes in and is being showed through the characters and the relationships at a different pace than most movies, but in still a very uh, particular kind of way. Yeah. Any other like impressions aside from like Wes as a stylistic artist? Yeah. So getting to a, a few of the performances, the Wilson brothers, I don't have like a huge relationship to either of them. Like I didn't, I don't really know 
I haven't seen a lot of Luke Wilson movies. Uh, um, to me, Luke Wilson is Elle Woods' boyfriend in Legally Blonde. Yeah. <laughs> and and Richie Tenenbaum. <laughs> I I think I, I've seen Luke Wilson more in like screenshots of movies than actually Luke Wilson movies. Um, and then Owen Wilson, I I know him from like growing up. I watched Armageddon a lot, and also the Shanghai Nights, Shanghai Noon movies with Jackie Chan. And so I knew you know Owen Wilson more because I guess maybe he did some more. I, I can't even say more kid movies. He he just was in more things than I that I had seen. So in preparation for the watching World Ted and Bob's, I watched Darjeeling Limited, and it was just interesting seeing them. You know, like Owen Wilson plays the hot guy, like the hot neighbor who's like a bad boy but author type situation, mm-hmm. um, and Luke Wilson plays this very depressive kind of. Uh, I also want to say like it, it felt like a precursor to like Steve Carell's Little Miss Sunshine character. Yes. In terms of uh, the mood. One of my notes, one of my notes is that I'm very sorry I made you watch two movies in a row where someone tries to kill themselves. It was not on purpose. It was not even something I thought about. To the mo- best of my knowledge, there will be no more suicide attempts. That's right. not a promise. That is to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> I don't um, know. That was really funny whenever you you texted me that. Because honestly, I didn't even connect the two until you said that. And then I couldn't get it out of my head. Well, um, for me, if I can like make a comment on the Wilson yeah. just right now. So I, I've seen this movie so many times. But in my brain, it's never Luke Wilson. It's always Jason Schwartzman. And, I, and it's because <laughs> that is who Wes uses in that role, in the like Luke Wilson role moving forward. Like for all the rest of mm-hmm. the it's a major market correct as far as like the Wes Anderson universe. Um, he very famously likes to stick to a lot of the same actors um, and shuffle them through. And um, I, I always just, I always think it's Jason Schwartzman. And then I watch the movie and I'm like, oh yeah, it's Luke Wilson. That's kind <laughs> of fun. Um, and it's because Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, and Wes Anderson all went to college together. They're all buddies. This movie is actually co-written by Owen Wilson, which I think is a very fun fact. And I think that, I mean, we mentioned that Owen has done obviously other movies, but like to me, nothing artistically at this level. And I think that Wes writes Owen Wilson better than any other writer. I think that he understands his abilities, both as like a comic actor and as a dramatic actor and gives him like a lot of room to play with where I feel like after this, you know, between you know the, the two movies you mentioned or even like Zoolander or he was in like all of the like Night at the Museum movies. Like he kind of gets like put into this like character actor slot for a while. Um, and even like he was in Marley and Me, but that's not necessarily like a big dramatic role, even though it's not necessarily like a funny movie. Like yeah. he kind of gets slotted for a while after that. And I think like anytime he gets to work with Wes, he really. I'm reminded that he's like a very good actor. That's a good point. I also want, uh, obviously Gene Hackman um, in this movie. What so a guy. So good. Again, in my head, Gene Hackman for a while was like just the coach on the replacements, which I realize is bonkers. Like that's not a, I think it's a good sports movie, but it's not a, a notable sports movie at all. Like I hadn't seen The French Connection until the other day because I watched this movie and I'm like, oh, let me see how like Gene Hackman was when he was younger. I've seen Bonnie and Clyde in that kind of iconic role, but uh, it was fun learning that Wes had written this role for Gene Hackman um, and Gene Hackman didn't want it. Like he thought it was too biting or he wasn't interested 
in someone writing a role for him and presuming they knew what was best for him, um, yeah. which is funny, but it feels really, I don't know, it, it's a low-key performance, but also like Titanic in the way that that role and Royal, literally the titular character of the movie, pulls all the strings uh, for most of the story. Yeah, what did you think of, of Gene Hackman? I mean, this is like, he is Royal to me. Like, this is where... I mean, similar to when we talked about um, Silence of the Lambs, like I can't remove Jodie Foster from Clarice Spaulding. Like I can't remove Gene Hackman from Royal Tenenbaum because this was the the introduction to me and that I was obsessed with it instantly. He's the one that's kind of moving everybody out of the way or in the way um, in his performances. Mm -hmm. But he's so warm about it, which is kind of weird. Like yeah. it, that's kind of like the duality of, of the performance. Yeah. Aside from those, like what uh, kind of has stood out to you the most? I feel like this um, has set a record for any discussion about Royal Tenenbaums before getting to what really stood out the most, which is Gwyneth Paltrow as Margot Tenenbaum, a character whose aesthetic I've seen or whose look I've seen in like Halloween costumes and like screenshots and just uh, very myth making types of situations it's a cinematic icon this character like if you had to think of like a hundred most famous characters like margot tenenbaum would probably come up yeah and and not like you know she gets introduced before this moment but the part where she gets off of the bus and richie's waiting for her and that song plays i think is it an elliot smith song mm-hmm. uh, and it's just like hey by the way gwyneth paltrow probably one of our biggest movie stars in the 1990s early 2000s before she becomes goop um and pepper Potts, and it's just like wow what a concept gwyneth paltrow acting yeah she's so good as Margot, and i mean that's like saying the sky is blue like i i completely understand that but yeah she just she knocks out of the park and instantaneously you believe that she's Margot tenenbaum you believe everything about her. It's not hacky. It's just so direct. And uh, Margot Tenenbaum makes me want to take up smoking so badly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I want to like sit on a like on a bathroom counter and paint my toenails and smoke cigarettes and ignore my husband. i know she kind of is really living like a good 2020 2021 life she just is in her bathroom taking a bath and watching tv and who among us you know yeah i mean i completely agree (laughs) i listened to this interview really quick and i forget what it was on but Gwyneth talking about why she was so interested in Margot and just like because Margot is a, is a playwright and got like a genius grant when she was like nine and in a way I, I, as I was watching the movie I was like is this Wes's like it's like a projection yeah where where like she has these dioramas or these little sets in her room and they're all reading her screenplays all the time or her stage plays I, I don't know I just was like Wes are you making yourself Gwyneth Paltrow I mean it is like the inspiration for writing this movie came based on his own parents' divorce. Mm -hmm. And even though he has stated like it was not this tumultuous, uh, it was like the reason he like made a movie about divorce. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the other interesting fact is like originally Margot up until like almost one of the last cuts, like Margot wasn't a stepsister or not stepsister, adopted sister. It was just his regular sister. And I think like almost she plays that role more than anything but i love just the like uh 
this is my adopted daughter, Margot Tenenbaum. Like, <laughs> it's just so good. I also just love the like low key breezy by myth making of Margot Tenenbaum. Like, she was married in Jamaica before. Like, the secret life of Margot Tenenbaum. It's which... very like. Uh, I mean, I Margot is obviously one of like cinema's biggest manic pixie dream girls. Where it's like, she's dark and mysterious and way cooler than you, but really hot. And you want to make out with her, but she'll probably never talk to you again. You kind of want it that way. Like, you think your life will become more interesting by dating this person. Like, Mm. that is, Margot is one of the quintessential cinema manic pixie dream girls. But I also think that she does a really good job of... For like all all of them, like everybody in this movie does a really good job of accurately portraying child burnout, and it just always, I always just think of the the line toward like the mid end where Gene Hackman says, "What what happened? You were a genius," and she said, "No, I wasn't." And he said, "That's what everyone mm-hmm. said, though," and she's like, well, "That's not my fault." <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just think that's so good. I do like this movie in terms of how it looks at three different kinds of early sought genius and how that plays out as they get older. So obviously Richie is this tennis star. Margot is the playwright and uh, Chaz is the business genius, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they achieve success super, super early. And then we see them 20 years later and they're kind of grappling with like they're all washed basically. Like Margot hasn't written a screenplay in however long. Richie flamed out famously and Chaz is kind of struggling with the death of his wife. And we'll get more to him because he, he's something I thought about a lot. But the way that this movie low-key just is like, hey, like all these people are incredibly successful and you very well could watch this movie and be like, why should I feel bad for these rich people who have problems? Like who cares? But that's where the kind of direction and... Um, performances you kind of feel that sort of empathy and sympathy for these characters and i think gwyneth in particular kind of wears it on her face and in her characterization and in her costuming and and kind of everything that goes into the the you know margot tenenbaum of it all Mm -hmm. i think like uh ben stiller's chaz is like a perfect you know your parents can fuck you up but you could have one reaction to it or another reaction to it and mm-hmm. they're like the perfect opposites of each other and i think that's like such a fun dichotomy every time i watch this movie i'm like oh they have the exact same trauma but yeah. they're like handling it completely differently it's funny because i've i've watched all of noah bombeck's movies and ben stiller's uh, character in the meyerwitz stories has a kind of similar relationship with his father in that movie who's played by Dustin Hoffman where he's like kind of simultaneously being like I'm better than you but I need you to tell me that you know that yeah and and obviously he's also dealing with the trauma of of losing his wife and he is kind of like this he is the most sympathetic character probably of of all of them because he actually has this like weight to his character and part of that is because he has kids and he has the the dead wife and and these kind of easy ways to imbue emotion into a character that still work but like it's also funny that out of all these characters which are all of them are crazy like he's the most neurotic forward character even though it's probably the most valid like he's the (laughs) one that stands out as like just being so over the top let's get into the most like heartbreaking line reading of 
ever when you know finally at the end of the movie after the the car crash and you know they save a dog or i don't know what happens a lot a lot, a lot happens in that sequence um ben stiller finally looks at, at at royal and he's like i've had a rough year dad and it happens so quick but like it's such a pinpoint line reading where his voice cracks just a little bit and royal's like i know son Ugh. It's like so heartbreaking because you know that Chaz has had this, you know, tension build up and this in this emotion kind of build up this whole time because, you know, his his wife is gone and but he has to take care of these two kids and, you know, make sure they're safe and everything like that. And he feels like so deserted by his family and he he feels so resistant to being vulnerable with his father for like at the very end. And there's so much hostility throughout the mm -hmm. whole movie between the two of them. And just at the very end for it to be like here is my feeling and then i hear you like that that's like uh, all we're uh, looking, that's all we're looking for and that's all we want yeah i it's so good it's so beautiful and sad at the same time another like not that this is um this is actually a luke wilson reading but another one that i always think of is between chaz and richie um uh, when richie's still in the hospital and chaz says is it dark and richie says of course it's dark it's a suicide note like i, <laughs> like, I think about that all the time and it's, <laughs> it's that's like a perfect summary of like why is this line about suicide funny like that's what a wes anderson movie is about <laughs> yeah 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 i i think i've heard that song in uh, phoebe bridger's album yeah um, honestly speaking of music the kind of last thing that I had that stood out was just the soundtrack um it felt like you know, granted, I was six when this movie was released. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> yeah, but it felt like a real capturing of both the music that Wes Anderson would be enjoying and like it, it kind of almost informs my New York in a way or my New York in that period in a way. And this movie comes out, I think, post Napster, pre iTunes. Mm -hmm. um, and when music wasn't just like available at the drop of a hat, which I think about often, how we're able to access any kind of music we want to right now. But you know, as recently as like 15 years ago, you would have to still risk downloading a torrent on LimeWire or purchasing it on iTunes or going out and actively finding a physical copy of this media. And, you know, just how that played into discovering music, uh, it felt like a, a kind of captured a moment. Yeah, it very much gives like a time and place of like early 2000s, like indie world, both in the way that this movie is shot and the themes and the music and like it's all it's all part of the same sort of genre it's so good and that elliot smith song is so sad every time to me like wes is a genius like uh, of course this is the the music that he put in his movie like everybody's depressed in this movie and it's like all their responses to that depression and it felt like the music really matched that and even like the the peanuts christmas song that Margot gets as a theme like that can either be really happy or like really nostalgically sad as we know like the holidays can be difficult for a lot of people and that fact that that gets used for margot in like a non-holiday sense is uh interesting choice and like a cool choice no I, I just i think that it's super real i don't know just the way that he works with like feelings and emotions and the way it's portrayed. And like I said at the beginning, like I really love things that are are bright but still sad. There's a lot of melancholy um, in this movie. Yeah, it feels like this movie is hyper-saturated in terms of its colors and its hues. But emotionally, everybody is kind of feeling that black and white, gray 
scale that you can feel or seem like you see the world in whenever you're in like either like dealing with depression or a depressive episode and everybody does that really well in their performances and and in the way that they're just kind of chugging along in life it's it's pretty uh deft uh even like angelica houston like everybody understands the assignment and knocks it out of the park yeah yeah for sure and i think that's just wonderful so uh, those are some things you've thought about. Those are things that stood out. But after you and I are the same, we have the same uh, natural tendency to look something up as soon as we're finished watching something. Um, what were some of the things you looked up first? Okay, so the first thing was the house, because I feel like I saw a tweet about the Royal Tenenbaum house like two days before I watched the movie. And uh-huh. you can rent you can rent the house now. It's in the Hamilton Heights neighborhood of Harlem. And you can rent it for a very cheap price of $20,000 a month. Okay. You win? So it's a big house. Like it is a big house. You could you could split it with a lot of people. It it might be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, after that, <laughs> I literally just googled like Wes Anderson color theory, mm-hmm. and lots of essays. Uh, yeah, not an original thought by any means. No, it's like a massive thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess uh, one big thing is like how he subverts a lot of color theory things in. I guess like how I said, the emotions of the of the movie might not really match the aesthetic of the movie. Um, and you think of like Margot is a lot in like yellow hues, which is usually like innocence and like playfulness. And, you know, I think of a lot of Moonrise Kingdom and there's a lot of yellow in that movie. Um, and then Chaz is in his iconic Adidas tracksuit, red. Iconic. And I really love it just for this, even boiled down for the bit of at the funeral, they're wearing black and white adidas tracksuits not to be like an absolutely annoying art nerd but this is also very similar to what like van gogh did with his art like the sunflowers is obviously bright yellow that's gonna it's in a yellow vase it has like a light blue background with yellow hues in it there's sunflowers um and he distorted the like original color theory that this is supposed to be wonderful because like sunflowers die really quickly and mm. like all of the flowers are like a little bit wilting and like they are dying. And um, he painted his house in blue. Um, blue is usually a sad color, but it was like the only place he felt safe. Like it, it he reminds me a lot, like obviously he's very inspired by Van Gogh and his color theory. Um, mm. So I, which is my one of my favorite painters. Um, not an original thought, also. <laughs> Van <laughs> but, Gogh, good painter. Yeah, someone I enjoy, but I <laughs> I noticed that as well. Naturally, I looked up how this did at the Oscars. Um, this was nominated for best original screenplay. It lost to Gosford Park, which is a movie I haven't seen. Um, but that was the only only nomination. Gene Hackman got nominated for a Golden Globe. Uh, and he was not there to accept his award. Very Anthony Hopkins of him. I wouldn't imagine this is a movie that would catch the Academy's attention in 2001. I think for a long time, the Academy like didn't take Wes very seriously. I think that's mm-hmm. why like when he finally did win for um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, it was such a big deal um, because mm-hmm. it was sort of like, oh, he's a kitschy, like, artsy guy who doesn't like he makes films that he likes and people enjoy but it's like hipster garbage um Mm -hmm. and it's very stylistic of course but i i think that he you know kept pursuing that and i mean the french dispatch is coming out this year and it is absolutely like an oscar contender 
like yeah with, without a doubt like no one's even <laughs> seen it yet and people are like this could win an oscar yeah so yeah and, and before we kind of round out this conversation like we haven't talked a ton about owen wilson it, it was funny watching owen wilson be like the hot best friend character because like, again i he, what he's the dork in armageddon or like the I don't know, buddy cop person in the Shanghai Nights, Shanghai He's New movie. He's a meme. And I I mean, obviously there's all, every actor in this movie, it like really nails it. Um, and Owen Wilson's like worth talking about. Of course, like I, I again have mentioned that I think that Wes is the best with, with Wilson, but there are a few Ben Stiller serious performances that I actually like or respect. And this one is always it. Like I can't imagine anybody else playing this role and mm-hmm. he just is so good. And Ben Stiller's not in a lot of other Wes Anderson films. He kind of gets shuffled out. I think that he kind of like made his similar to Gwyneth, like he made his claim, created an iconic character and moved on. And I think that's absolutely incredible and definitely should be noted one more time. Yeah, I also enjoyed how Owen Wilson, um, in as Eli Cash, his aesthetic is a cowboy, and he's kind of playing the Texan in New York. Like, yes. You know, as we know, Luke, like you said earlier, the Wilson brothers and 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 Wes Anderson, they all grew up in Texas together, and they're in New York, and they're kind of just like these Texans in New York, and and kind of embodied by Eli Cash in that aesthetic. It's very Austin, Texas, and I, I, I love it. I think it's great. Before I watch this movie, I think you had mentioned to me you think this is the first Wes Anderson movie people should watch. Can you explain that a little more? I think it just encapsulates everything that is Wes Anderson's vibe. Like, mm. so if you start from the beginning of his career, I think that's something important to do with like uh, a lot of directors if you sort of start toward the beginning i think that's something that really pays off if you watch david fincher films you watch him grow um, and discover his style a lot i think that rushmore and bottle rocket are very fun movies and are are good and are worth watching but they are not unmistakable wes anderson films in my opinion um Mm -hmm. and i think that this like it gives some of the best performances. It's the most stylized. You absolutely understand like everything that you're getting into for the rest of uh, rest of his filmography. If you vibe with it, you'll like the rest of them. If you don't, it's not worth your time. And mm. it was like it's his most notable film for a reason. Is like another mm-hmm. is another point for me. The action, all of the acting is out like out of this world and. It, it hits a lot of emotional notes that not necessarily all of the films like go back to. And it's all, it's just a classic. Did you ever see Moonrise Kingdom? That was the first Wes Anderson movie I saw. I watched it uh, when I was in 11th or 12th grade. And if you had this on your bingo card, it was because of Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to know who she is. So good. I love that movie. Uh, yeah. So would you watch it again? Would you watch other Wes Anderson movies? Are we watching Steve Zuzu anytime soon? I'm going to watch Steve Zuzu soon. I will watch this movie again. Wes Anderson movies always hit me after the fact, I feel like, because they they kind of wash over me in the, you know, the, the, the beauty of it, the kind of quirky, offbeat humor, cadence of everyone's talking and jokes and everything. And 
me being like a cynical person being like oh this is kind of like silly like whatever mm-hmm. and then you think more about the movies and the characters and the story and it's like well i gotta go back and and really watch it now because it's such a sensory overload in a way um mm-hmm. visually which is funny because there's not a lot going on in the background or anything like that but it's just in the perfection of it all that i know in revisiting it i will come to enjoy the characters while well. come to appreciate Margot and her dealing with her what has been labeled genius or Chaz and you know death and uh Richie and his failed love and also sporting career and those things will kind of be more informed um so yeah of course I'll watch this again <laughs> will you be buying a tent to put in your living room indoor tents lit i remember sleeping over at my best friend's house and we used to just like put up a tent in the living room make sure the little door was open to the tv watch some teenage mutant ninja turtles and go to sleep in the tent that's very cute. why i don't know <laughs> i've never gone camping <laughs> i should put a tent in this office i feel like it would go well i love that there's a uh, coffee shop in vegas that has like a vw bus tent mm-hmm. indoors it's kind of it's very vibey that's cool Red. Well, thank you for watching. Uh, one, it's like truly one of my favorite movies. It was a pleasure. I, I feel like I know you more. I'm glad you liked it. All right. Are you ready for some Francis Ha? Let's do it. But after a break. <sighs> this episode of Blind Spotters is not at all sponsored by Fruits and Roots. But if you're in Las Vegas and looking for real food that tastes real good, Fruits and Roots is the place to go. They serve organic, nutritious food that you'll just feel good about. Hit their drive-thru and get a smoothie, my favorite is the gummy bear, or one of their perfect acai bowls packed with fruit and delicious house-made granola. Fruits and Roots also uses sustainable, eco-friendly packaging for all their products, so it's an all-around guilt-free experience. Check it out, and you'll thank me later. Amanda, you watched Francis Hall for the first time. I did. This, like how you felt about Royal Tenenbaums, has been on my list forever. And Mm -hmm. as soon as it got put on our uh, outline, I was like, okay, I'll wait. I'll respect it. I'll kind of remove it from the list for a while. Um, It took me this long, so I might as well just wait a little bit longer. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I watched Francis Ha. All right. So why don't you tell me uh, what happens in this movie? Okay. So I also feel like... I will be glossing over a lot. I was <laughs> so, going to say this this is probably the least amount of movie I've given you. Yeah, which is, you know, we'll we'll get to that, but here's sort of the the plot summary. Um Frances is a 27-year-old girl making her way through this section of her life in New York. Uh she's very attached to her college best friend Sophie who tells her eventually that she's moving out of their shared apartment. Uh, this is sort of the first sign in the film and in Francis's life that people are moving on to their next steps without her. Uh, she's a dancer, but not really going anywhere. She's doing some lessons and is wanting to be in the next big pageant, but it doesn't really seem like it's going to happen. She seems very stuck um, after being rejected in her words by Sophie or dumped by Sophie. Like she says, uh, she moves in with some friends of hers who are guys, um, one of them being Adam driver. Um, she hears through the grapevine that Sophie, uh, she hears about Sophie through the grapevine and sort of realizes that she's not as close to her as she thought she was anymore. Um, this inspires her to invite Sophie over and it's a little awkward and a little judgmental and, you know, it doesn't vibe 
the way we saw them in the beginning of the film. Um, Frances then goes home for Christmas after finding out that she didn't get the dancing showcase and because of that wouldn't be able to pay rent. She goes back, um, lives with their family for a little bit. When she returns to New York, she stays with a dancer friend um, and finds out also through the grapevine, through like mutual friends, that Sophie is moving to Japan. And this strikes her really suddenly. And it's sort of like the thing she thought she should have known before everybody else, but kind of knows last. And this uh, makes her spontaneously decide to go to Paris for two days um do it's very much like a look a location change doesn't change the depression sort of situation she can't adjust the time change she basically sleeps her way through paris not sleeps with people her way through paris physically just sleeps (laughs) in paris for two days um sophie calls her saying that she's having a going away party for japan of course she's in paris my heart sinks at this point um she can't come when she returns, she works at her old college uh, to pay off some credit card debt. I'm going to Paris and isn't getting, you know, it, the job isn't what she thought it was. She's still very unsatisfied. She's reading Sophie's blog, really getting the like uh, Instagram is a highlight reel version of like Sophie's life in Japan um, until she sees Sophie at an event at the college where Francis is working. They reconnect while Sophie is hammered. Um, but then the next morning she leaves again. And I think this is sort of like a, a little last moment for Frances. Um, toward the end, we see her working at the dance studio again. She had choreographed this big dance. She reconnects with Benji, which is one of the old roommates, notably undateable. And then she moves into a new place and her name doesn't fit on the name tag. So then we see Frances Ha and that's that's the movie. Yeah, that's that's basically the movie. Like, there's a lot of nothing that happens in this movie, but um, that's pretty much the through line. Yeah. So, good job. <laughs> Thank you. Why was this movie chosen for me? I picked this movie because it's my favorite Noah Baumbach movie. It's, I think, the sweetest um, he is, the most, um, I don't know, thoughtful. And I think part of it is because it's a movie that, you know, he and Greta wrote together. And Mm -hmm. as you know, Lady Bird's one of my favorite movies. So kind of getting the Greta Gerwig into the Noah Baumbach universe of writing, uh, I thought was really special. And I don't know, it's just a a very sweet movie. It's it kind of captures that like post college growing into adulthood and trying to navigate adulthood friendships. And um, it becomes more and more real as we get closer to Francis's age, just like the different stages of life we're all at. I, mm-hmm. I love this movie more and more every single time I watch it. So when you like in watching it for the first time, what were the things that, that stood out the most or, or what were the impressions on your first watch? Didn't know it was in black and white. That was oh, a really? surprise. Yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. That was really fun. Uh, I think that sometimes black and white movies, especially if they're modern, um, can feel very campy at times, but when done well, is really enhancing. And I think that this is one of the films that is like that. Uh, obviously Roma very famously like used black and white to its, its fullest advantage. Um, and I think that this movie actually did very well in black and white, as we've said a hundred times already, like it barely feels like acting. Like it kind of just feels like a, we're just watching this girl. It's, it's extremely lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was is great, and I'm sure it has to do with the fact that Greta did write it uh, alongside Noah Baumbach, um, and then she gets to be that character. I imagine 
that helps you become that character like fully. Um, it's very cute, you know, like uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. It's it's very happy, sad, and I like a lot of movies that way. And um, again, like the Royal Tenenbaums, a killer soundtrack. Yeah. Anytime, like the main song is a David Bowie song, and then like <laughs> the second main song is a Paul McCartney song, like I, I'm in. Like, yeah, I think it's so fun. Um, just a really killer soundtrack, and it really only uses a couple of songs, but uses them multiple times in different ways and in different mm-hmm. moments to sort of string together these parts of of her life and sort of connect these ideas together. It makes you reminiscent of, Oh, the last time I heard this, this is how she was feeling. That's how she's feeling mm-hmm. now. Um, and I thought that they did a, a great job of the soundtrack. Shout out to David Bowie. Yeah. I, the black and white and the soundtrack in particular, um, to have like a film bro corner for a second, uh, it was very friend. Like it, this movie is like, Oh, this is Noah Baumbach doing a French New Wave movie, which mm-hmm. um, now that I've actually watched movies in the French New Wave, I'm like, oh, yes, I could see all these things. Like the sequence where she runs to the ATM because she's not a real person yet. That song is a sped up version of a song used in The 400 Blows, um, mm-hmm. which is it's an iconic coming of age movie. And just the, you know, the quick cuts and the kind of mini, mini, mini vignettes of scenes. Um mm-hmm. Is, is very fun and i love the way that they shot it is uh they shot it on a canon uh 5d mark ii with like a 24 to 70 and a 70 200 so like i don't know any kid with a college broadcast equipment lab maybe you can go make your francis ha mm-hmm. <laughs> and um but the part about like where acting doesn't feel like acting is interesting because like knowing that greta and noah are both very much anti ad lib where everything that's said is on the page and everything that's done is on the page and like the blocking is on the page and i was watching this interview with greta gerwig and she was saying that noah loves a lot of takes so you know there'll be 20 30 takes in and that's when you kind of can get into like this lived in feeling of of the characters and the relationships and like the physical space of it Mm mm-hmm um, another thing that I connected to, which is something that kind of stood out to me, it's very Woody Allen, um, removed from Woody Allen, the human, but Woody Allen and the style of movie he makes, um, it, it reminded me a lot of, uh, his style and obviously it being placed in New York and it being in black and white, like that's all very connected and it follows just like a person trying to live their life. And that's like a very Woody Allen thing as well. Um, and I, I think that as much as I think that Woody Allen is a grotesque human being, he (laughs) makes really good movies and, uh, it's obvious that that was something that was influential to them as well. Right. I feel like there should be a montage or somebody on YouTube has made a montage of like, uh, black and white movies where people are running in New York. So think of like the apartment or like uh, Francis Hall has a sequence. It's not in black and white, but there's one in When Harry Met Sally. Lots of people love to run in New York uh, to to music. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so I, another influence that I thought a lot about, and it was actually something that I looked up almost right away, was uh, it feels very Girls season one. Um, mm. Girls, unfortunately, is a show that has not aged very well. Um <laughs> just based on Lena Dunham, but it has a lot of the same energy of like 20 something girl trying to figure out her life in New York and like with Mm -hmm. her buddies and 
it doesn't hurt that Adam Driver is in both of these things and that they came out in the same year that was like something that stood out to me and maybe like very reminiscent of of the showgirls and a show that i really enjoyed while it was on and i also really like the actress uh grace gummer she plays the girl from the dance studio that francis goes to her house after uh christmas rachel um, rachel yeah Grace Gummer is an actress I don't see very often, but every time I see her in something, I'm like, oh, she's so good. Mm -hmm. I really like her and I would really love to see her in more stuff. And I thought that she did really well in this movie. And I was like, of course, like they found each other. Like that makes a lot of sense. Like I would want Grace Gummer in more Noah Baumbach movies or even more Greta Gerwig movies. Not that Greta is doing her own stuff. She's Meryl Streep's daughter, right? Possible. I have no idea. I'm pretty sure she is. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense. Hold on. Now I have to look uh, it up. <laughs> yes, she was born in New York City to actress Meryl Streep and sculptor Don Gummer. Ah, well, no wonder she's so good. <laughs> Nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's how Greta got uh, Meryl to be in Little Women. Little Women. <laughs> You know what? It's all connected. The, the Greta Gerwig, Noah Baumbach universe is one that I'm here for. It's fun the way that these actors kind of get very small windows. It's like Royal Tenenbaums where, you know, these scenes are very, very short. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you only get, you know, two minutes here, 30 seconds here. And the selection of the scene kind of like tells you all that you need to know. It's like at the same time, it's a it's a very lean movie, but it's of a lot of you could say fat where mm-hmm. it's like, why is this scene in here? But it's all building upon a narrative and building upon the characters. Yeah. And uh, I think that Grace Gummer also like does very good at the like barely feels like acting situation. Mm. Um, and then just in the, like the black and white style that stood out, I thought a lot about Sophie's glasses um, she has mm-hmm. these sort of like thick rimmed glasses that in the black and white really shine in a, in dark shots, um, mm-hmm. which was another thing that reminded me of Woody Allen. And it's all sort of all the thoughts of, about this movie are all sort of connected. But I thought that that was like a very good stylistic thing to put her in glasses. This movie is also sort of like a, a feeling yeah. more than anything. You've brought up like Francis is different living situations and her roommates. I don't know if anything is funnier than Adam Driver coming in in his towel and being like, sorry, just trying to get to your attention. Bye. Yeah. And like, I, I know you haven't seen Girls, but in Girls season one, um, we're introduced to Adam Driver's character in the very first episode. Um, he ends up dating Lena Dunham's character off and on throughout the whole series. It's uh, her boyfriend. And the these... Um, Season one of Girls aired in April of uh, 2012, and this movie came out in September of 2012. So it was very much like Adam Driver all at the same time and like New York all at the same time. And he is very, he plays very similar role. (laughs) It's like the, he's kind of the biggest asshole, you know, but then the main character girl is like, isn't he magical? Shouldn't we all marry him? And you're like, <laughs> yeah, but there's like 600 red flags, honey. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's extremely into himself. Like when he, when they're at dinner together and he's like, uh, this is me in the Nick locker room. And, uh, this is me next to Billy Crystal. It's like my worst nightmare of like a conversation that I might be giving with someone. I just love that. Like he says the same thing to the girls every time. And like, you know, yeah, you want to see of- my room? 
you know what kind of person he is like instantly and i it felt a lot like his character in um girls which i think that adam driver is one of the best parts of that show um but the season one he has a lot of purposeful character flaws um that make it a little hard to watch now but uh i was just like oh I remember 2012 Adam Driver like doing the like asshole boyfriend thing that made him very charming, but you know, you should stay away from anyway. Uh, I thought that was very fun. Adam Driver's ability to deliver a multitude of lines, which I know is an actor's job, but like, I feel like he is particularly good at just imbuing them with a lot of life. Like just in the one where he's like, Hey guys, this is Nessa. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's very fitting that like he and, Bombeck have sort of stayed together throughout their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, having him in Marriage Story uh, a couple mm-hmm. years ago, it it fits really well. And I, of course, Driver plays a character that wants to stay in New York um, because Bombeck loves New York, and uh, <laughs> I think that's like very fun. And yeah, it was it's very like homey because that show is very similar, and I really liked it when it was on. Um, and it's sort of like you kind of know someone who's a little bit like all these characters like that's mm-hmm. pretty fun and like i'm 26 like i we are in the stage of life where it's like it's not college it's not right after college when everyone's like getting their first job and like figuring it out and like kind of hanging out with all your college friends you're like in like part three uh-huh where it's like adult world reality part one almost and um that is like exactly what's happening to her um, in this movie. And yeah. I was like, oh, I, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think of this movie, I think of Frances as she's a New Yorker that can't exist anymore. And, and her adventures of roommates and different situations kind of bring her to what maybe like mid-20s people in New York are now. Like the artists that are not starving are you know benji and lev they're but they're rich kids and yeah that's how they're able to do that or you know you're an adult making your way in your career and so you move to a better neighborhood and and, and like it almost feels like francis is like everybody's kind of passing her by because she is this other version of the city and a person in the city that you know can't really not hacking anymore but has to grow up within the city more like she has to take that job she has to and it takes a whole movie for her to kind of get there yeah i don't know i thought that was interesting where each person that she lives with is like a version of francis but not like benji and lev artists but rich rachel Mm -hmm. a dancer but actually in the company sophie her same person but is starting to grow up a little bit and be in adult relationships and it takes francis being forced out of each of these relationships because she is not in the same place of them in her life that you know forces her to finally kind of grow in that direction yeah and uh i i promise not to make this just like a girl's podcast but (laughs) that's like a huge criticism of the show is that like the show is about these like four white girl best friends and they're like three white dude boyfriends that they cycle between and like Granted, there is a lot of, like, uh, many of the characters are Jewish, but still, at the end of the day, like, they're just, like, five white people complaining throughout the whole movie, uh, or throughout the whole show. Um, And there's a lot of, like, very unrealistic, like, um, them affording things and them being, like, very 
dependent on their families, but in a way where they're like, they don't think that they are like, Mm -hmm. like a character in girls would tell you that they pay for their own rent when they absolutely don't. I loved that this movie was like very, and the issue with girls is that they like kind of skirt around it. The only reason they can all afford to be here is because of their parents. And like this movie was very much like, Oh, the reason they can afford this apartment is because they have rich parents. Yeah. Like they just like, <laughs> they just like say it. And it's like very obvious. And like, she's yeah. like, no, I'm really poor. Like I'm actually poor. And right. all of her friends are like, no, you're not. And she's like, no, 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 <laughs> I am. <laughs> I know you're not working and you can afford this place, but I'm actually poor. Right, and right. I, I did that was, a, I was like, Oh, that's how you write it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. So since watching the movie, um, what's kind of like stuck in your brain the most? What has stood out the most? I think that it's really refreshing to see a movie like this where, as we've mentioned, you know, our main character is sort of being passed by all of the people in her life and she isn't getting, she can't pay rent and she's not getting the job she wants and she moves home and then she gets a shitty job up at her old college and she's working with college students, but they don't like her and, and she doesn't <laughs> like get the job. Like she continuously is like, getting passed up but she is smiling through the whole thing like she just comes at this whole situation with such joy and like there's a there's like a reality to all of it like she's not like she's not like smiling through the pain but she's just like okay well that didn't work and we're gonna go you know do something different we're gonna do something else and like that's the situation like she's not you know throwing a tantrum in her hotels her parents hotel room like Mm -hmm. she just like keeps going and and i think that's a very refreshing mood and attitude that we don't see a lot in film um and i that's it's infectious and i i think that's a part of what makes the movie feel very lived in and it makes the character feel extremely real um again like it barely feels like she's she's acting uh, mm-hmm. it just feels like this is a, a real girl in the world and her smile is so electric um throughout the whole thing and i i think that in my research i read this thing that said that greta didn't um anticipate starring in the film when she wrote it with noah but mm-hmm. bombeck basically was like i this is this is you like you have to do this um, and I'm really glad that he forced her to do it um, because <laughs> I can't imagine really any other person being in this role. And I think she just, she really nails it. Uh, something I've also thought about are, uh, I think uh, adopting cats is a weird way to ask somebody to move in with you, um, <laughs> which happens in the very beginning of the movie. Okay. So to that, that part of the scene, and it's something I want to talk about with, with Greta being Francis in that scene and in another scene in particular, Frances is a character where you can see her internal monologue playing out on her face and you see her being like, I don't want this at all. But it, but it's also coming out of her voice. But she's also like, as she's saying, uh, yeah, I want to move in, but no. And, and you can see it in her eyes. And another one where I think of it particularly is when her and Adam Driver go to dinner and then go back to his apartment and <laughs> he hands her a camera and then touches her shoulder and she makes that like, eh. sound and like if you watch it you could see her face being like oh god oh no why did i say that this moment's over thank god ben's home (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah she's she's very like facial um she's very expressive yeah it makes the most of greta gerwig's mannerisms and 
uh, ability to like twitch her face a certain way. And um, she talked about in this movie, Noah used a lot of wide angles. And so she was able to give Francis this sort of like full body physicality and mm-hmm. think about her performance in that way and the way she runs and the way she falls in the way she, you know, leaps through New York streets. Um, yeah. Which I think yeah. is very fitting because that, character is a dancer like she would be very bodily physical like she mm-hmm. would react with all of the limbs and i i think that it's extremely smart um other things i've thought about is i would love to go to a christmas party where somebody plays the trumpet <laughs> it was very charming <laughs> yeah I, I was literally thinking i was like who do i know who plays the trumpet that i could invite to a christmas party <laughs> we need we need to find a trumpet for friend yeah, I've got like six months to find a trumpeteer. Uh, listeners, <laughs> let me know if you play the trumpet and you want to come to my Christmas party. Um, this was something maybe you can explain to me. So like, I know that she takes the job in the front office. Um, toward the end of the movie, she takes the, the job that she originally didn't want um, in the front office of the dance studio. But how did she become a choreographer? Are you, are you asking how like she became a choreographer or how she started choreographing to be able to like choreograph that last number? Yeah, that that one. Like, how did she go from like front office person when it was pretty clear that she wasn't going to be able to choreograph? No, no, no. So this is kind of like the tie in to Francis growing up and like being an adult. That job is basically offered to her in the beginning of the movie or like in the middle of the movie where she she has her meeting. So um, she is no longer a dancer within the company, but her boss is like i really like what you've done with like even the kids or you know other things you've choreographed before um you can use the studio space um just you know i can't pay you as a dancer in the company but if you work this other job within the company you can still use the studio space you can still use our our facilities here um which is how she did that so she's doing like main gig side gig there's a whole second movie of like francis grows up like if they wanted to for sure um, and then, uh, I mean, I've talked a lot about like how I thought this movie feels very like authentic, but there is in our age group, such a feeling when you look around, sometimes you're like, Oh, all of my friends have their shit together. They're getting married or they're in long-term relationships or they're getting pregnant on purpose. Um, they're getting these <laughs> amazing jobs. They're buying houses. They're moving in with their cool friends. They're moving out you know, of their college apartments. And I'm, you know, probably doing fine, but I'm not doing any of those things. And when there is a moment, and maybe it's, maybe not everyone has this moment, but I feel like there is a moment at this stage in life where you're like, oh, everyone has their shit together, but me. And I think that that is like such like a, that's like such a grounding feeling and is like something that's blatantly said in the movie when Benji says like you have a I think it's Benji when she when he like explains like you have an old face but you don't have your shit together um, yeah (laughs) and I was like oh god (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah I feel you (laughs) well I think even like if you want to go super metaphorical whenever Sophie stays the night at the dorm and then leaves and Francis runs out and then looks at her feet it's like yeah. that's the moment she literally finds her feet because after that she takes the job and you know gets her own place and all that stuff. But before that, you know, before when she's the one that doesn't have her shit together, when she is that friend so clearly in every single circle she's in, I also kind of feel like she injects life 
back into those people. Like I think of the dinner party in particular because all those people are, you know, married, pregnant, in the dance company, uh, is a lawyer, and she's still coming at this life with like this young gung ho energy. Like yeah, the, there's the part- like a lot of like youthful jubilance that exchange- hasn't worn off of her. Yeah, the exchange where uh, they're like, what do you do? And she goes, well, it's complicated. What you do is complicated. And she's like, no, it's because I, I don't really do it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, she can't hide in that sense. But then she also has that, you know, that beautiful monologue of talking about where, like, she wants her person in that little multidimensional space, which, it, like, because <laughs> she's wasted and she sounds stoned. Um, and who among us hasn't ever had, like, a, a, a thought thread go too long and realize it? like at the end where you're like wow i've been talking for a long time but you look at everyone else and they're like that's their their faces are like that's right that that's what you do want that is yeah. beautiful and they're almost taken aback and, and then like she's like has feels like she has to go and they're like no like we want you to keep talking you know not to be so sentimental but definitely the thing i've thought about the most since watching this is my sophie is Kelsey Hess. Uh, She was my college roommate. She is my best friend. Uh, She is the person, the only person I would have moved to New York for had had it been an opportunity, not a city I quite enjoy, but a city I could have figured out for Kelsey. And uh, just like the montage in the beginning of them living together. And I was like, oh God, I I was like, oh, this feels so homey. And then as they like, kept falling out but missing each other but obviously Sophie cares about her mm-hmm. but is just like kind of walking through a different path of life and Kelsey and I are not on different paths of life it's not that intense like there hasn't been a big fallout between me and my college best friend but I definitely was like oh what if one day I was like oh that's like a reality like everyone mm-hmm. you don't live together anymore and you move on and those people you still care about them but they're not the center of your world and it's funny like I Whenever she's like, oh, yeah, that's my my person. This is Sophie is my person. I was like, oh, I like I do that all the time. And yeah. I literally texted Kelsey and I was like, I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I think the that's the love story in the movie, right? Like, Oh, yeah, totally. Like, I mean, like, when she describes like wanting to fall in love and wanting to, to have someone and smile across the room and have them completely understand. And, you know, you see that person. And at the end of the movie, when that literally happens between her and Sophie at the end of her dance recital thing. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, like this friendship is going to be okay. Even if they sort of like move, you know, possibly in other directions, they're always going to be tethered to one another. Um, and I, that's indistinguishably the, uh, yeah. the love story in the movie. There was an actual <laughs> line that I was like, I feel like I've heard Kelsey say this when she says, I'm not dirty, I'm busy. Um, <laughs> which I think is, it's very charming. And yeah, I also I want just... to, I also want to say, Kelsey has her shit together. Like she is like, <laughs> she like can't afford rent and like has a good job and like is doing what she needs to do. I am not trying to like make those assumptions, but right. um, the things that make Francis so magic are like the things that make Kelsey that way too. I think it's, yeah, pretty stark how they, kind of lay out the growing pains of a friendship going from a college best friendship to an adulthood best friendship you know i think of the scene where they go to that underground bar for a quick drink um Uh and they're in the bathroom and francis literally says don't treat me like a a 3 p.m brunch friend but like how many of our great friendships after college have just like when we can get brunch with somebody on the weekend And, and that's because when we're adults like that's as much time as we have to to give so uh shout out to kelsey hess (laughs) 
Shout out to Kelsey Hess. You know, I feel like after this podcast, if they don't know who Kelsey is, they might look her up. But, you know, this is about our movie blind spots. So what were some of the first things that you looked up about this movie? Uh, so when she goes back, when uh, when Francis goes back home for Christmas, she goes to Sacramento. And uh, that is also where Lady Bird is set, mm-hmm. um, which was Greta Gerwig's uh, directorial debut. And so I looked up if Greta Gerwig was from Sacramento. And oh, yes. Is. Famously. Famously. It, and now I know. Um, I had a feeling like I think that was something I like knew in the back of my head. But I was like, I bet. Like, did this did is you know? Right. Did you know that her parents in the movie are her real parents? No, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, because they wanted to have it be this real, you know, feel like coming home. And I guess originally when they wrote the story, Noah and Greta wanted the Sacramento sequence to be longer, but that would have required her parents to say more lines and like it would have required them to hire actors and you would have kind of lost that magic. So that's why it's kind of like this montage of the holiday season. And, you know, there there's like, I don't know, 25 different scenes within that 10 minute stretch. Yeah. Um, I, I love how much... Greta gets to love Sacramento. Like it makes me very jealous. So like I want a movie about Las Vegas in that way because everything about Las Vegas is about the strip or like the hangover. Um mm-hmm. and I like that she got to kind of inject some of that Sacramento into into this very New York movie cuz I've been to Sacramento. It's really fun. I like it. I might be the hot take, but I like Sacramento a lot. Yeah, it's very quaint. Uh I think that it's it's funny you say that because that was actually the moment where I was like when I wrote down the note that this barely feels like acting is like when she's interacting with her parents at the mm-hmm. uh, airport. And that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. The, very, lo- the longest lovely. conversation in that entire stretch is her and her mom being like, Oh, you guys were like level green. And that's yeah. it. Like that's the longest conversation that happens in that sequence. Yeah. Another uh, like part of that sequence, it's like extremely important to note throughout this whole thing was that uh, Sophie had been to Christmas with Greta she had been to Christmas with Francis for the last three years because she's Jewish um, and Sophie wasn't there. And it was sort of this like defining thing of like, you know, your friend that might come home with you every year when you move around, like they don't always come home with you anymore. Um, mm-hmm. That was very notable. I wanted to know when this was written in relation to Greta and Noah's relationship. So they're mm-hmm. together. We have a baby now. And it's it's actually very similar. So uh, they started dating uh, according to the internet, of course, uh, late 2011, and the movie debuted September 2012. So I can imagine that, like, in the writing and production of this movie, is when they fell in love and started dating. Well, um, they so they met and like kind of started their courtship when they worked together on Greenberg. Um, okay, because that was the first time he worked together with with Francis or <laughs> with Greta. <laughs> <laughs> I am struggling with names today. Um, I love listening to both of them talk about writing and working with each other. Um, like Greta has talked about in interviews where like working on this movie or working on like their own projects separately, how her favorite part of the day is like, you know, writing a scene and then they exchange their work and then hearing the other person laughing in the other room. Because like Greta really looks up to Noah Baumbach in terms of like how he writes and you can kind of see that they're cousins of each other when in their writing styles like I love the way Noah writes dialogue and you can kind of see Greta does the same thing especially like in Little Women where they're talking over each other Mm -hmm. Um, but in Noah's writing I love how he kind of has those like throwaway unanswered sentences and thoughts in a conversation like I think of Sophie and Francis smoking outside and she's like uh 
I don't like smoking alone. And then Sophie's like, don't pick at your face. And it's just like these unanswered sentences. And then you kind of get these repeated threads throughout the movie that are really small, but kind of almost inform how that character is feeling. And again, I think of Sophie pointing out that Francis looks into a lot of mirrors. And when Francis is drunk after their big fight, she like finally flips over and like looks at herself in the mirror. Or right before mm-hmm. she leaves, she like is about to pick her face and then you see her be like no Sophie wouldn't what, want me to and then the last second before she leaves she goes to pick her face and this movie feels like a lot of so in kicking and screaming in the first in the scene where Grover meets the girl whose name I forget right now um in his writing class and she critiques his writing she's like I feel like these characters spend all their time discussing the least important things which feels like Noah Baumbach calling out what people don't like about his movies but which in turn kind of build out and flesh out like what that's what's special in his movies and particularly in Francis Hall where there's like, I don't know, four actual conversations that move the story along. Um, mm-hmm. And most of them take place in that dance studio. The rest of it is just Francis's life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I, I really love how he talks about there's a really good YouTube video on lessons from a screenplay talking about this kind of same thing when it comes to Noah Baumbach and how the like interstitched overlapped missed connection reconnection thing within a conversation makes it feel so real and like you said like that it doesn't feel like acting yeah yeah I love it I think they I would love for them to work together again I'm sure they will according to the internet they are they're working on uh this movie that's going to adapt white noise which is a 1985 novel and cool. it will have Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver and it's a Netflix movie. So it's supposed to start filming late 2021. I can't wait. Sounds super up my alley. Can't wait to uh, vouch for that one at the 2022 Oscars and for something else to win. <laughs> yes, exactly how I felt about Marriage Story. <laughs> uh, so lastly, of course, Amanda, would you want to watch this movie again? Yeah, I probably will watch it before I see Tenenbaums again. Um, wow. I know that that is like a, a question I like to ask, like which movie will you try to rewatch first? And it's possibly because Tenenbaums I've seen 300 times and I don't really <laughs> need to see it again, um, even though I probably will someday when I'm like sick and need something comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like it's a movie that you pick up new things every time you watch it. Um, only you can vouch for that in this duo, but I, I think that's sort of that's the impression I get from it. Yeah, it's a very revisitable movie. Like you can just check out 20 minute pockets of it. You can have a sip of Francis Ha, but I'm glad that you like it. I'm glad that you want to revisit it. It's also nice that it's like 85 minutes. Yeah, that was really (laughs) helpful. This week has been crazy for me. And uh, I was struggling to find time to do my podcast homework. And when you're like, it's extremely short. I was like, thank God. (laughs) Yeah, I recently I've decided to 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 watch for the first time the Lord of the Rings movies. And because I just wanted to go max maximum Middle Earth, I've watched the extended edition of the first movie and which is great. But it's four hours. It's so I, I love brevity we love editors and conciseness and so noah bombback and greta gerwig thank you yes we were saying uh, these the movies, movies are good. uh extremely <laughs> earnest and i really enjoyed watching it and so thank you for making me watch it but what are we watching next time what is the next swap 
Uh, we are watching Chicago crime movies, and this is a, a related theme because I couldn't figure out a movie to pair with the one you wanted to give me. Um, <laughs> uh, I will be watching Chicago for the very first time. And Amanda, what movie did I give you? I'm so excited for you to watch Chicago. Um, <laughs> I'm watching a movie I've never even heard of. It's called The Sting. I imagine it might be more crime driven than mine, though mine does take place in jail. So maybe not. The Sting is uh, the reuniting of Robert Redford and Paul, Paul Newman uh, oh. and George Roy Hill. I'm excited for you to watch it. Robert Redford is extremely handsome. Uh, I've been watching a lot of musicals uh, recently, uh, so I'm excited to tackle Chicago, um, especially knowing that it's a musical, because last time I watched in a musical from like modern times, it was Moulin Rouge, and I texted Amanda and our friend Maya and said, wait, is Moulin Rouge a musical? To which I responded, famously. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think Chicago is available on uh, Stars if you have it, uh, but it's just available to rent for like four dollars on wherever you rent movies. Um, the same with the Sting. Uh, I'm sorry for keeping recommending movies where you have to spend five dollars, but um, hey, support movies. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. So yeah, Chicago and the Sting for our Chicago crime movies, uh, and continue to uncover the blind spots. Uh, should we get out of here, Amanda? Yeah, let's do it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we appreciate you guys joining us on these uh, movie ventures. Uh, make sure to keep following the podcast on Spotify, or maybe by this time we'll figure out another way to get it onto a different podcasting platform. Maybe not. We have full-time jobs. Uh, follow us on Instagram at BlindSpottersPod, and we are on Twitter now. Uh, we've been on Twitter by the time you're listening to this for about a month and a half, and I'm tweeting semi-occasionally. Uh, the handle is at BlindSpotters, so do that. You can follow me on Twitter at ZachPocalyb or on Letterboxd. And Amanda, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Amanda Luberto. Uh, tweet me, which is your favorite song in Chicago? I'd love to argue with you. <laughs> I'd love to argue with, I'd love to argue with you, Amanda Luberto. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> um, Amanda, thank you for never treating me like a 3 p.m. brunch friend. Uh, and can't wait to continue uncovering our blind spots. Yeah, see you later. Peace.